you've got a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, we'll be in verses 7 to 11 this morning. Um, I learned a few things last weekend as I listened to the podcast. Um, and since I don't see him in the room anywhere, um, I learned that Duncan is not an environmentalist, so he doesn't like flowers. Um, and so, oh, there he is. He just walked in. So, and man has no choice, the chance to defend himself now because I have the microphone. Uh, but uh, I learned that about him, that he doesn't like flowers or floral print, by the way. So, ladies, you just offended probably half of you in the room that have closets full of dresses with flowers on them. Um, but I also learned um, he's not invincible. Man has a weak bladder. And so... <laughs> Um, I, I appreciated that story uh, last week as well. Uh, but then I also learned, I, I, I thought for a long time that Duncan really liked me, but I, I realized in the message that he doesn't because I'm not funny or very bright. Um, and so um, I realized that he, really this has just been all a ruse he's been putting on for the last several months to really appreciate my company. Um, but if you, if you missed the message last week, I encourage you to go check it out. You can check it out on SoundCloud or the iTunes podcast app. Um, it's there for you to listen to as we talk through what judgment looked like, making right judgments. Um, from Matthew chapter 7. But this morning we take a look at verses 7 to 11 uh, as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount together. And if you've got a Bible, open it there. If not, it'll be on the screen for you as we read it. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 7, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Now, as we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount for several months now, we've been taking a look at is Jesus' vision for the good life. Whereas Jesus has a vision for life lived under the rule and reign of God. So where we don't step outside of God's rule and reign and define for ourselves what is good and evil, define for ourselves what is right and wrong, define for ourselves what is true and false, but we live under the umbrella of God's authority and we enjoy the presence of God, the provision of God, the protection of God. We enjoy God living under his rule and his reign. It's his vision for the good life. We've taken a look at that from the very beginning of this series all the way through this, this text today. And I want to know today that a part of Jesus' vision for the good life, a life lived under the rule and reign of God, is that it involves living a life that is not lived independent from God, but lived in dependence upon God. It's a life of prayer. And so we want to take a look at it this morning. And just, we want to dive right in. I don't have much more for an introduction than that, but I want to dive right into this text because I want us to see how Jesus teaches us about prayer and what we can learn from it this morning as we consider what a life lived in dependence upon God looks like. Well, the first thing I want to show you in the text is this, is that when Jesus speaks to us about prayer, he commands us to call upon God in prayer. He commands us to do it. In verse seven, there are three commands when Jesus says, ask and seek and knock now, these three words are not suggestions that Jesus is giving, right? They're in what is known in grammatical terms as imperatives. They're commands that he issues to us. In other words, Jesus is saying, do this. He's not giving us suggestions, and he's not participating in conjecture or giving his opinion as he weighs in on a discussion. But Jesus is commanding us to ask and to seek and to knock that he's commanding us to pray. There are three commands there in verse seven. He repeats them again there in verse eight. And anytime you see something repeated like that in, 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 in the Bible, it should 
send off these buzzers in your mind as you begin to look at why is it being repeated like that for me? It's meant to reach out and grab us by the shoulder, turn us to face God and for God to say, do this, you need this, you desperately need this. Whenever he says, ask, seek, and knock, for everyone who asks, will, everyone who asks will, will, it will be given to him. Everyone who seeks, he will find. Everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Jesus is saying, you desperately need to call upon God in prayer. And the reason I think he's saying you desperately need to live a life independent upon God and not independent of him is because that's our natural tendency as fallen human beings, is to want to live life independent of God. In fact, you see that at the very outset of the Bible in Genesis chapter three, when our first parents fall, whenever they take of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they eat and their eyes are opened and they realize how ashamed they are and they go hide themselves and cover up in fig leaves. Before they ever took a bite of that fruit, there was a disposition and desire in their heart to live life independent from God and not independence upon God, not to trust him in relationship. And that, that, that is a part of the essence of sin in, in, in this world, is that we would seek to set out on our own, chart our own course, define for ourselves what life should be. And that's, a, that's part of the essence of sin. And Jesus is saying you desperately need not to live independent from, but independence upon God. And that continues throughout the rest of the Old Testament. You see it over and over again whenever Israel faces great national challenges. Where does she look? Who does she turn to? Where does she go? Over and over again, whenever threats arise from outside of the nation of Israel to come in and overthrow her, she turns tail and runs to great kings and other powers and authorities in the Mediterranean region, the ancient Near East surrounding her. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 30, You find these words recorded for us as God speaks to his people through his prophet and he says this. He says, ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine. And who make an alliance, but not of my spirit. In other words, my spirit didn't lead you into this alliance. That they may add sin to sin, who set out to go to Egypt without asking for my direction, who take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. In other words, God's saying, as opposed to seeking refuge and shelter, preservation and protection under the shadow of my wings, my covering, my preservation, instead of getting on their knees and calling out to me for God to, de- for God to deliver, they're trusting in Egypt to deliver. They've got a plan, but it's not my plan. They've made an alliance, but not in in unison and leadership of my spirit because they have not sought me for direction. And that that same spirit of self-reliance and self-determination and self-madeness carries on to this day in every generation, it exists. Right? We're trained, not only, it's not only ingrained in us from the fall, but we're trained that way in our culture, right? To make something of ourselves, not to rely on anyone else because everyone else is going to betray or hurt you and so you rely only on yourself and you're gonna get it done, right? Or if you grew up further east than here, get er done, right? That's what you're gonna do. You're gonna be self-made, self-reliant, independent. I'm gonna chart my own course and blaze my own trail. And Jesus says, you desperately need to call upon God in prayer. You desperately need to live in dependence upon him. Now listen, each of these commands in the text is not describing three separate things, but they're describing one thing. Prayer, ask, seek, and knock, but from three different angles. 
And it seems to me, I'm not the first one to make this observation, but it seems to me that they're describing different levels of felt accessibility, right? For instance, right, if you walk into the house and your father is in the room, he's sitting in the living room and you're in the living room and he's right there and you're in his presence, all you have to do is what? Ask. You just present your request. But if your father is in some other part of the home, then you have to perhaps seek him out and go pursue him. But if he's behind a locked door, then you have to knock and knock and knock and then he opens the door for you to present your request. They seem to be describing different levels of felt accessibility. Now God's presence is always with us. He's never abandoned you. Do you know that? That he has never forsaken you if you're his child. It's always with us. But there are times in which, have you ever found this to be true in your life? Where the there's like a palpable presence of God in your life. Like he's, it feels like his nearness to you is so close that you can feel it. And all you gotta do is come running before him and ask and present your request. There are other times where it feels like God is far off and hard to be found and you gotta seek him, diligently pursue him on your knees persistently. And then there are times it seems like there's God is so far removed and there are barriers and obstacles between you and him. And so you have to knock on the door. And it seems that Jesus is saying that no matter the, the nearness of God that you feel in the moment or the farness of God that you feel in the moment, that what you're called to do, what I'm called, what I need desperately is to come to him in prayer and call out to him. And there are times in which because of the nearness of God, you will come running into your prayer closet. You just want to be there. And there are times in which it feels like God is so distant and there are so many hurdles and obstacles that you have to drag yourself into the closet. Because there are times, let's just be honest, there are times I, you don't want to take it to God, you want to take it to that person, right? There are times in life when, when you need to talk, what, what Jesus is saying is that one application of this, is there are times in life when you need to talk to God about people before you go talk to people. And there are some times where you need to go talk to God about people and not even talk to people. Because there are some things that are so toxic in me and in you at times that'll spew and spill over into those conversations and relationships. Because you've, we have not come before God and called on him in prayer and knocked and sought and asked. Jesus commands us to call upon God in prayer. He says you need it, you need it desperately. But I want you to notice as well how he motivates us to do it because Jesus does not heap on guilt, right? He doesn't, like some of you are gonna walk out of here this morning going, I don't know, I need to pray more, right? Is there a prayer pledge card somewhere I can sign, like a little bit of willpower I can muster up, right? right? Because you're gonna feel so guilty that you don't pray enough. But Jesus doesn't use guilt to motivate us. He uses the grace of the character of God and of the promise of God to motivate us to come before him and call upon him. The character of God and the promise of God. Look at the character of God first. He says in verse 11, he says that God responds to us because he's a good dad who only knows how to give good to his kids. He's a good father. In fact, he kind of argues from the lesser to the greater in verses nine to 11, right? When he starts off by saying you, right? You moms and dads in the room, he says you who are evil, right? Sin has tainted and affected, it's bent and broken your hearts. You, when your child asks for a gift, when they ask for something that they need, when they ask for something that would be helpful, you don't give them something that would be harmful, right? When they come before you and they ask for a loaf of bread, you don't give them a stone, you don't serve it up on a platter to them, right? Here's a piece of river rock, right? 
When, when they ask for a fish to eat, you don't pull out a viper and set it before them and say, here you go, here's a snake. He says, you know how to give good gifts and if you know how to give gifts, even though your hearts are tainted with selfishness and sin, then how much more does a God who is nothing but good, who is nothing but righteous and just, who is nothing but wise, know how to give good gifts to his children? That if you would come to him as a needy child, in dependence upon him, crying out to him, that he will answer because of his character, because he's a good dad who doesn't know how to give bad gifts. He, he, he points us to the character of God as a motivation to come before him, as needy children coming to a good father. Because when we come to him as needy children, we get the help and he gets the honor. Do you know that? That you get the help and he gets the honor. But one of the things that keeps us from coming to him in our lives is the presence of pride, right? It's the presence of pride. Pride prevents us from prayer because we really don't believe, a prideful heart doesn't really believe that it needs God. It's self-sufficient, right? It, it wakes up in the morning and it looks in the mirror and it goes, you got this. And, and it pumps itself up, right, every day. Right? And the, the, the greater the need, the more intense the self-motivational self-talk gets in the morning in front of the mirror. You got this. Right? It gets louder and louder and louder because we're trying to muscle our way through it on our own. Because when, if, if we can get through it on our own, we get the honor. We get the glory. And that's a prideful heart. Doesn't believe that it needs God. But I want you to consider something. Those of you in the room who are believers this morning, if you're a Christian in the room this morning, I want you to know this, that the same way that you came into the Christian life is the way that you live it. And look at the back of the very beginning of the sermon, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn their sin. In other words, blessed are those who recognize they are absolutely bankrupt and beggars before God, who, who are, mourn their, the fact that they have rebelled against him. They don't come before God holding up their merits and saying, God, you must accept me, God, let me in because I've done all these great things. I'm a really good person, God, help me. Give me, give me, give me acceptance. But they come before God saying, God, I know that I have nothing to offer you and you have everything to give. Everything to give. And so I'm gonna not come before you with my merits, but I'm gonna throw myself upon your mercy because I have nothing to give you. And the same way that you enter into the Christian life is the same way that you live the Christian life is in humble dependence upon God. And the way that it manifests itself is through prayer. That we would call upon him because he has the character of a good father. So you don't look in the mirror and say, I got this, but you look in the mirror and say, I ain't got this. I know ain't ain't a word. Right, those of you who are teachers, in the room, I, I know it ain't. <laughs> but you look in the mirror and you say, I ain't got this, God. I need you desperately. Because when it comes to the greatest needs of your life, have you found that you are absolutely incapable of making a dent in them? And Jesus has talked about the greatest needs in our life. Right? Because some of you, when you look at your anger, you go, I got this. I can muscle my way through it. Or when you look at your anxiety, you say, I got this, right? I got te techniques and tactics, I can get through it. Breathe, serenity now, serenity now, serenity, right? You, lo you look in the mirror and you see your own judgmental spirit and you say, I got this. 
as opposed to looking in the mirror and saying, I ain't got this, God. I desperately need you to change my heart, to do some heart work here. Now listen, some of you may not wrestle to believe that you're a a needy child coming before God because you look in the mirror and you go, you know what? I got needs. (laughs) I I can see them. Everybody else can see them. They tell me about them sometimes too. You may not wrestle to believe that you're a needy child, but some of you wrestle to believe that he's a good father. You wrestle to believe that he's a good dad who gives good things to his kids. Let me ask you some questions this morning. Do you believe... Do you believe, some of you wrestle to believe that God's favor rests upon you in Christ. Do you believe that? That in Christ, God's face is turned towards you and not away from you. His, his, His countenance is upon you to give you peace. His back is not turned towards you. Do you believe that in Christ, that God's favor rests upon you, that God is pleased with you in Christ, that God is not against you, but that he is for you? Do you believe that about God? See, some of us don't believe those things. We believe that we've got to wrestle what we need away from God because he doesn't stand disposed towards us in a manner to give it. So we've got to come before him in persistence because he's waiting on us to wrestle it out of his hands in prayer. But that's not at all what Jesus says, that he's a good father whose heart is turned towards you. You know, that's the character of God, one who loves his kids. Some of you wrestle to believe that God loves you, doesn't just tolerate you. You've had a lot of people tolerate you in your life. Maybe your own father tolerated you. And so you think God just tolerates me. But you don't really believe that he loves you. The reason some of us wrestle with prayer to the degree that we do is because we've yet to learn to think true thoughts about God. And one one of the things that you need to do going out of this room this morning, if you're going to bolster your prayer life, if you're gonna actually call upon God in prayer and live a life in dependence upon him as opposed to independent from him, is that you need to begin to fill your mind and your heart with true thoughts about God. You don't need to go out and say, I'm gonna sign a prayer card, I'm gonna willpower this puppy until I get her done, right? You don't need to go out and make some kind of pledges. We're not gonna have an altar call where we call everybody down here to raise their hands and say, yes, I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna get up at 4.30 every morning and get on my knees for three hours before I start the day like those guys did way back then in the Middle Ages. You know, they had no electricity. So they got up when the sun came up and went to bed when the sun went down. You don't do that. Right? And so you don't need to make those big, bold declarations. What you need to do is begin to fill your mind with true thoughts about God. Because true thoughts about God filling your mind and your heart will produce bold prayers in your life. And you will run to the closet when you believe that who is waiting there for you is a good dad who knows only how to give good gifts. See, when, when, when Israel, even in, in the Old Testament, when Israel strayed away from God, his heart was for them and turned toward them because he'd made covenant with them. And here's one of the ways you know that. It's because even in their painful experiences of exile, God was working for their good. He was working for their good because his heart was good towards them. See, they, just, they determined they were gonna find good somewhere else and said so they were gonna worship the gods of the other nations and give themselves over to idols. And God said, okay, you, you wanna continue to press that and press that and push away from me and push away from me and push away from me. So he raised up Babylon, one of the nations that he raised up, and he sends them over to conquer and destroy the, 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 the nation of Israel and lead them away into captivity and bondage in Babylon. 
and they would spend 70 years there before God would come and deliver them. But even in that exile, God was aiming for their good because he wanted to secure their hearts for himself. See, some of us need to learn to believe that even in the midst of our pain, that God is working for our good, that he is for us and not against us. Sometimes it's the disciplinary hand of a father who knows what is best for you and he's trying to draw you to himself and not let you continue to run after others who will only leave you unsatisfied, insecure, and, 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 and destroy your life, your very soul. Because listen to what he says in Jeremiah 29. Now listen, this is, this is not a graduation verse, by the way, and all of you just graduate your seniors on your little senior cards, all that stuff. It's not a graduation verse, right? Listen to the context. In Jeremiah chapter 29, this is what God says to his people. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. In other words, after you've been there 70 years, I'm gonna show up, I'm gonna take you back from Babylon, drop you back into the, the land of promise. I'm gonna fulfill my promise to you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So all of this difficulty that you experience was a part of me securing your hearts for myself so that you would come to me and pray to me and seek good for me because I've got a future and a hope for you. I haven't abandoned you and left you to die. He goes down, further down in chapter 32 of Jeremiah to say this, I will give them, speaking of his people, one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will, he says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. God says, everything that I'm doing, even the painful things I'm doing for your good because he's only a dad. He's a dad, a good dad who only knows how to give good gifts. I gotta move or we're gonna be here all day. But some of you need to learn to replace those thoughts of God that he is turned away from you if you are in Christ. If you're in Christ, he is, his back is to you. His countenance is not resting upon you that you might have peace. Right, you're not his child. But if you're in Christ, if you've turned from running and ruling your own life and come under his rule and reign, that his face is only towards you and he desires nothing but good for you. And Jesus says, if you believe that, you will come running to him. The second thing that he, the way he motivates us is this, not only with the character of God, but the promise of God. The promise of God. Look in verse seven, when he backs up every statement that he makes, when he says, if you ask, you'll receive. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, it will be open to you. He backs up every command with a promise with a promise, and this is some of the most bold language in all of the scriptures. Listen to what he says, he says, Jesus Jesus says, when we ask, it will be given, when we seek, we will find, when we knock, the door will be open, when we ask of God in prayer, he delights to give us good gifts. 
He delights to do so. When we seek God in prayer, we find him meeting us in our mundane daily needs and our most difficult ones. He meets us there as we seek him and pursue him. Whenever we knock on the door of God in prayer, he opens the door that we might have fellowship and intimacy and sweetness and nearness with him, but he also opens the door for the kingdom of heaven, for for things to, to be on earth as they are in heaven, for his will to be done here and now as it is then and there. He opens the door for us whenever we come to him. Jesus paints a picture of a father who delights to answer the calls of his kids and he promises that when we pray that we would have God's ear. Is there a promise greater than that? That if you would come before God and call upon him in prayer, ask, seek, and knock, that you would have the ear of the Almighty, that you have the ear of the creator of the universe, that his ear would be towards you and his heart would be responding with good. There's not a greater promise. There's not bolder language in all of the Bible that speaks of prayer. But one of our problems is this, when in, in response to the promise of God is that we would, not only do we have the presence of pride that makes us doubt the, the character of God, that he's a good father, or that we are a needy child, but we also, also at times there's an absence of faith in our lives to believe these promises to be true. There's an absence of faith. Now, some of you would say, well, I have faith. I have lots of it. I have faith that God will answer prayers for everyone else but me. You ever been there? You ever felt like God? God will respond to everyone else's prayers. I see him answering prayers over here for this family. I see him answering prayers for this single adult. He provided a spouse for them. He he opened the wombs and they began to have children. He healed this person over here. He responded with financial provision for this couple over here. I see God answering everyone else's prayers. I see as I walk through my loneliness, how, how, or as other people walk through their loneliness, how God provided friends to come alongside of them. I see how God brought about change and broke addictions in people's lives. I see him answering it for everyone else, but I have not seen him answering it for me. I believe, I have faith that God can answer prayer. He just doesn't answer them for me. But look at what Jesus says in the text. In verse eight, what, what does he say? Does he say some of the people who ask, some of the people who seek, some of the people who knock, that God responds to their prayer? What does he say? Everyone. Huh. Everyone. You know what that means? That means everyone. Now, it doesn't mean everyone who's ever walked the face of the earth. It doesn't mean everyone who is living outside of relationship, uh, covenant relationship with God. It means everyone who's a child of God has Jesus as their savior and God as their father, that everyone who calls upon him, he gives, he is found, and he opens. Everyone. Do you, do you really believe that? That when you get on your knees and you cry out to God that he will answer, that he will respond. And because he has the character of a good father, he knows how to give nothing but good gifts. So there's not one of God's children. If you're in here and you're a son of God, a daughter of God, through faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit has come to abide within you, you've repented of sin and you've trusted in him. You've come under his rule and reign. There is not a child of God that is excluded from this promise. Not a single one. 
Listen to how Martin Luther phrased it. I love the way he says it. He says, he knows that we are timid and shy and that we feel unworthy and unfit to present our needs to God. We think that God is so great and that we are so tiny that we dare not pray. That is why Christ wants to lure us, he says, away from this way of thinking. I love the way he says that. He wants to entice us, draw us out, bring us away because he knows we're so drawn to thinking that way. He wants to draw us the other direction so that we would know it would remove our doubts and he would have us go confidently and boldly before God that whenever you call, God answers. His ears turn towards you because his face is turned towards you. Do you believe that? I shudder to think how much we may have forfeited because we have failed to ask. Because we did not trust the character of God. Or because we did not believe his promise applied to us. Now it's a bold promise, I said before, but it is not one without boundaries. It's a bold promise, but it's not one without boundaries. It doesn't mean that God will give you whatever you want, whenever you want, however you ask for it, right? He didn't just serve it up because we've asked for it. If he, if he did, he would cease to be God and we would be God. <laughs> Do you realize that? That he would cease to be almighty and we would become almighty because we're commanding him to give us whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want it. So it's, it, there, there are boundaries to this promise because prayer doesn't work this way. And let me tell you, some of you are frustrated by that because you want prayer to work that way because you really think you have an idea about what would make you super happy. <laughs> and so you wish God was obligated to respond, right, to these things, but you don't want prayer to work that way. And let me tell you why. You and I don't want prayer to work that way because it would put us in the place of God without the wisdom of God. Alec Mateer, one theologian, he said it this way. He said, if this were the case, that whatever we asked God was pledged to give, then I, for one, would never pray again because I would not have sufficient confidence in my own wisdom to ask God for anything. And I think if you consider it, you will agree. It would impose an intolerable burden on frail human wisdom if by his prayer promises God was pledged to give whatever we ask, when we ask it, and in exactly the terms we ask. How could we bear the burden? The burden would be so great, and here's why. Because you, like me, have at times disordered loves in your life. And there are things that you want so desperately because you think they will be so satisfying and you may get on your knees and pray and plead with God and ask him for those things. But sometimes, you know what God knows? God knows that sometimes what you're asking for that you think is a loaf of bread actually would be a stone in your life. And there are some times that what you're asking for that you think would be a basket full of fish to feast on would actually be a king cobra ready to suck or strike you and, 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 and unleash venom across every organ in your body. So there, see, there are times in which you're pleading before God. And remember, God only knows how to give good things. And so there's some things that he withholds because he's only given you good. And then there are some things that he gives because he's only given you good. Consider the prayer of the Apostle Paul 
In, first, in Second Corinthians chapter 12, uh, I was thinking about this this week and it just kind of, it, it just kind of blew my mind as he prays, um, Paul's had all these incredible revelations. He's gone up to the third heaven and seen all these miraculous things. And then he says this in Second Corinthians chapter 12, just after he makes those statements, he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times, Paul says, three times, in desperation I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. See, what Paul, Paul has this, I don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. Commentators debate that. There's like 700 books about it. Go read some. But whatever it was, whatever it was, he's pleading with God to take it away and God refuses to withdraw it. And what Paul learns through that is there is something that is better than a pain-free life. It is a pride-free life. He says he left it so that I wouldn't become conceited because of all these revelations that I'd received. Sometimes, see, God knew. God knew that what Paul was asking for was a stone. It was a snake. And he gave Paul bread and fish. And in your life, it's the same, same way. See, you don't want to be in the place of God without the wisdom of God because your life would be a train wreck and so would mine. And so what we must learn to do, if, if back under the character of God, we have to learn to think true thoughts about him here, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Learn to pray with expectation, but without presumption. With expectation, but without presumption. See, when we presume, we arrogantly believe that we know the good that we need, that we know what will be best. In our, in our, in our arrogance, and so we presumed as we, as we plead before God, as we pray before God, that God's gonna respond with the good that we desire, that we want, that we think that we need. But that is presumptuous because there are times, again, where God is giving you what appears to be to you a stone, but he's giving you bread. And so you pray with expectation that whatever comes from God is only going to be for my good. And learn that there is a difference between painful thing and a harmful one. See, some of us haven't recognized that distinction yet. There's a difference between a painful thing and a harmful one. Paul has a thorn in the flesh. I can't imagine it was pleasant. But it was rooting out of him his pride. Had God removed the thorn, his pride would have seeped in. There's a difference between those two things. And so whatever you receive from God as you pray, know that he's expecting good, expecting God to show up, expecting God to answer, expecting God to give, expecting God to be found, expecting God to open, but not presuming to know what the good is that I need. So learn to pray with expectation and without presumption. And whenever God answers, remind yourself of this truth. Remind yourself that what you have received from the hand of God is whatever you would have asked for if you knew everything that God knows. So call upon him in prayer, church. Fill your mind with true thoughts about him. Pray with expectation.
Ask, seek, and knock. And as we close this morning, I want to tell you a little story. Because as a church, we have asked, sought, and knocked. We have come before God in prayer. Three years ago, when I stepped out of a, 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 a ministry role in another local church and into a role at what was at the time Sabine Creek Fellowship, the elders who were in place at the time, they believed that what we needed in order really to gain traction as a church was that we needed to break our identity away from the place that we were meeting and, and have a fresh start somewhere else. And so we began to pray. And there are men in this room who could testify to the fact that every, every week when we met as elders for a year, we were asking God about his leadership, about his direction. God, would you show us? Would you open doors? Would you show us opportunities? Would you send us where you would have us be? And as we prayed and prayed and we began to walk down certain roads, all of a sudden doors began to shut in our face. We walked down other roads, doors were shutting in our face. And then as we prayed for what was, it seemed like an eternity, right? We just, it seemed so repetitive because we kept asking and asking and asking God, show us. And so about 14 months later, I get three phone calls in three weeks time, unsolicited, from these individuals who were calling all independent of each other. And they say, hey, we know some folks who are building a daycare in Fate. They want to lease it out to a church. I know you guys are interested in the Fate area. You guys be interested in talking to them. And so finally, after the third person in three weeks called me with that same spill that they gave, I thought, well, maybe God's in this. And so we came and looked at the facility. We signed a lease with them in October. They finished construction in November. We moved in here in December. We asked and sought and knocked and God opened and answered and he showed us exactly where he was leading us as a congregation. And then we moved into this space in December of 2015 and when the calendar turned to 2016, we began to take on lots of water as a church. And what I mean by that is we had folks who, had, who, who began to step out of the congregational life and leave and go to other churches, right? So people left for all kinds of reasons. Some because we were too needy. Some because they wanted more for their children than we had to provide at that time. Some left because they'd kind of given up hope that God would turn this place around and that we would actually be a sustainable, viable witness in this community. Some left for a whole host of reasons. I sat down with people and they would have, they'd make bold declarations about their intentions to be a part of what God's doing here, right? And the way, the way that I, I phrased it to somebody a while back was we had folks who sat with us and they said, look man, we're gonna go down with a ship but the whole time they're in the lifeboat just kind of rolling the rope down, right? <laughs> and so two weeks or four months later, they're stepping out and leaving and going different places. And so as we approach the end of 2016, we already had Stanley John meeting with us in our elder meetings. We invited Steve Welch to begin to meet with us in those times for his wisdom and for another uh, count, head of counsel as we prayed and sought God's direction for this congregation as we prayed through whether or not we should even keep the doors open to this place or we should say to everyone who is here we love you deeply and you don't have to go home but you can't stay here <laughs> we just prayed through that God do we need to keep this place open is it vi is it viable we began to lose staff. Our, our student pastor and, and administrative assistant resigned in August. And then we, we went to our worship leader and said, hey, look, we can't afford to pay you next year because of the lack of giving that exists here. 
And so you've got some choices. Go out and raise some funds. We talked through that in September. Go out and raise some funds. Go out and find a second job, a part-time job to offset the pay reduction you'll have to take. Talk through all kinds of options. And at the end of the day, uh, he, he chose to move on to it in a different direction in his life. But here, here's what happened. Whenever we sat down and had that conversation, I said, hey, tell me if you're going to be available, they're going to be around. Because at that point, it was looking like it was going to be me as the only staff person here. And so I was beginning to sweat a little, a lot, well, a lot more than I had been sweating already. And so uh, things were just kind of uncertain. God, do you want us to keep going? We've been praying these prayers. God, give us direction, give us direction. The day after he confirmed that he would not be available any longer, I get an email from Brian Rowe. The day after... Saying, hey man, I saw you had a posting for a part-time student pastor to come out and work with your kids. I've never done student ministry before. All I've ever done is lead worship. <laughs> when can you meet? <laughs> and so we sat down literally like two days later. And a part of the conversation he and I, I had that very first time was like, brother, here's where we've been. I don't know if we're going to be here in 2017 or how much of 2017 we're going to be here for. Do you still want in on this? And he was like, yeah, sign me up. And so as we prayed through God's direction, he began to provide. We began to see his provision of filling holes and roles that we didn't know where that was going to come from. Completely out of the blue, we asked and sought and knocked and God answered. And in and, and the latter part of 2016, man, we were, we were, it was bloody around here. We were bleeding every month. Right? We had some money and savings that we had tucked away, but every month just to make expenses, we were drawing out of savings, pulling it over into checking just to pay bills and salaries. And we didn't know where money was going to come from. And I can remember us sitting as elders uh, with Kevin and I at the time, and then Stanley and Steve were part of those conversations as well. And I can remember us looking at each other around the table going, we've got to put a budget together for 2017 if we're going to try and make this thing work. I don't know where this money's going to come from, but let's just put it on paper. And we'll begin to ask. And so I began to go around to people who had been a part of my life and ministry previously, and I began to knock on their doors, right? Talking to God before I talked to them. And saying, here's where we are, would you support us? And I would set a goal to raise $20,000 to offset my salary burden on the church for 2017, and I quit raising money when we hit 22.5. And so God shot over what I, what I had expected him to provide. When Brian came on staff, he started networking with other churches as well, and he's got some support coming in to offset his salary. And so financially, we began to see God providing from externally outside the church. And so we thought, well, maybe, maybe this thing can actually float in 2017. Let's, let's give it a run. And so we began to put together a budget. We began to pray and ask God to provide. And at the end of 2016, with end of the year giving and January giving, we received about 20 grand. Now, for us, who've been receiving about eight grand a month previously in 2016, it was like amazing. God was opening up some, 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 some floodgates. That was floodgates for us. It may not be for bigger churches, but there's floodgates here. And God was providing. And so we continued to pray and ask and seek and knock. And I can remember one conversation where we all sat around tables in the back of this room as elders, and we said, we got five loaves and two fish. I think Stanley said it. That's about all we got. If, if this thing's gonna go, God's gonna have to show up and provide. And listen, I wanna stand before you as your pastor today to tell you that in 2017, God has provided financially. Listen, in, in February, we received, let me get these right. In February, we received $17,209 of giving 
that was not designated to you know, kids ministry or just general giving or, or salary giving here that we operate, can operate on. In March, it was over 15,000. In April, it was over 18,000. In May, it's, been, it's over 17,000. And so God has continued to show, show his favor and provide for us. It's been amazing because we didn't run a capital campaign. Right? We didn't send out slick mailers and say, hey, check a box, which one are you gonna do? We got on our knees and we said, God, we're asking and we're seeking and we're knocking and God answered. That's the only thing that I can attribute it to because when we ask, we get the help and he gets the honor. We ask for God to grow us Grow us, stretch us spiritually, and grow us in diversity. We have folks here now who are coming from all different kinds of backgrounds. We have homeschool families. We have private school families. We have public school families. We have families who are coming from uh, different ethnic backgrounds and different nationalities. It's been crazy to see just in, in fate, in Rockwall County, probably one of the whitest counties in all the nation, the diversity that started showing up at Redeemer. I've been, I've been blown away by how God's been bringing people. This is so encouraging. We prayed for people to step in as elders who would help shoulder some of the load of ministry and family started showing up saying, sign me up. Like, what can I do? How can I help? Where can I serve? We asked, sought, and knocked, and God answered. And listen, let me, let me I know I gotta land the plane. I got a little excited there, but, <laughs> but hear me, while there should be deep thankfulness in our hearts, there should not be slothfulness in our prayers. And while we should be content with all that God is giving, we should not fall into complacency. And so here's what I want to call us to as a church this morning is that we would continue to ask and seek and knock because we have a good father who knows how to give good gifts and he's promised that we would have his ear if we would call out to him. As Brian and the band come to lead us in a closing song, here's what I want us to do. As, they, as we sing together, I want us to pray together. We didn't have corporate prayer earlier. I want us to pray together now. I want to guide you in a few things as they lead us in music to pray for. And here's the first one. I've been amazed to see people showing up from all different backgrounds and walks of life coming into this room and into the life of the church over the course of these last six months. But what I've noticed is that we have an influx of people who are coming here, moving into the area, and are, you know, they're looking for a new church home because they moved from across the Metroplex or across the, the nation. Or we got folks who are looking for a different church because the one that they were at, for whatever reason, wasn't working for them any longer, and so they're moving around. But here's, here's what we've been seeing. We've seen people who are churchless show up here. Here's, here's my heart as your pastor. I would love nothing more than to begin to see people who are Christless show up here who are outside of covenant relationship with God. And that at Redeemer, we would be a church that is on a mission. 
to see God redeem and reconcile men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation across the globe and in our own backyards. I, I, I can't make that happen. In fact, this church will not grow on the back of the people who fill this pulpit. No matter how funny they are, or how much humor they lack, but it will grow on the back of a praying people. So would you pray with me this morning? Pray that God will give us hearts for people in this community who are Christless. Let's give you a space to pray. God this morning to grow us as a community of people who know what it is to one another. The New Testament calls us to love one another, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to admonish one another, to care for one another, and that we would be a, community, a church community that one another's well. ask God this morning to grow us in a willingness to radically sacrifice our time, our talents and gifts and our treasure for the sake of this mission he's given us to make disciples, that we'd be a generous and sacrificial people. God to grow us in the fruit of his Holy Spirit, that we'd be a loving, a joyful, a peace-filled, patient, kind, good, gentle, faithful, and self-controlled kind of people in the heart of Rockwall County. we are in deep need of him.